Good morning, everybody. Please turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to 1 Samuel chapter 28. If I was going to rank the strangest stories in the Bible, this would be in the top five. 1 Samuel 28. In those days, oh, we already read those verses. Verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunan. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life into my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, 
I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it, and she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. This is the word of the Lord. Let us ask for illumination. Father, shine your light upon us uh, so that we might see what this means uh, and how in it we find the goodness of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, I'm going to share a pastor pro tip life hack with you all that I learned in my first preaching class. Uh, I think it's really helpful uh, for just reading the Bible in general, especially strange parts of the Bible where you're wondering what it means. Uh, One thing I learned in my first preaching class that has stuck with me ever since is that you can take any passage in the Bible and ask it two basic questions to figure out what it's about, Uh, no matter where you are in the Bible, no matter what genre you're dealing with. Uh, First question, what does this passage tell us about how bad sin is? What's the bad news here? Second question, what does the passage tell us about what God has done to deal with it? What is the good news? What makes sin so bad, and what makes God's response to that so great? A lot of passages uh, cover both questions explicitly, but sometimes, uh, depending on where you break things, uh, sometimes questions are dealing only with one of those things explicitly. Uh, and the other one is being dealt with implicitly. You have to dig a bit in the broader context of the passage or go beyond even the book or the passage into the rest of the Bible itself to figure out the flip side, uh, the other question. Uh, as you probably have surmised, today's passage is one of those that is mainly only dealing with one question. What is so bad about sin? What makes sin so horrible? It's a passage that is meant to sober us. It is meant to humble us as we see both David and Saul facing the consequences of living without reference to God. This is David and Saul in more or less the same situation. In David's case, the passage that Ashley read, in David's case, it's going to have something of a happy resolution, but it's not going to come until chapter 30. You're going to hear about that next week. But Saul's situation, the the one I just read, Saul's situation is far darker. There is no resolution for him. All he has is downfall. And so today, we need to see and feel the darkness of living apart from God and his word, even as we will try to conclude with seeing and feeling also what's implied here, the beauty of of God's gracious response in Jesus. So first, chapter 27, you see David's despair. David's despair. This is what Ashley read about. He has been on the run from Saul for a long time. We've been covering that for a few weeks now. Uh, We've seen over and over how God keeps providing for David. God keeps protecting him, even when the situation seems totally hopeless. And one of the things you've seen in those stories is how David over and over, keeps trusting God uh, through all these things that are happening to him. Uh, And through these stories, you often hear about David praying 
You often hear about David inquiring of the Lord, finding out what God wants for him, and God responds and speaks to him and reveals himself clearly. And so we should be really shocked to read chapter 27, verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. And so you notice there what is not said. Sometimes uh, one of the most powerful, important things to notice in the Bible is what is not being said. There is no reference to God in that verse. There is no reference to God anywhere in the entire chapter. We've gotten used to hearing about David inquiring of the Lord, seeking the Lord's will, walking closely with him. We saw all these psalms that David wrote in this period of his life, expressing this deep intimacy with the Lord, this deep trust. And so now all you have is that David is saying in his heart, instead of inquiring of the Lord, going beyond himself, outside and upward, David just says in his heart. He's stuck with himself on this feedback loop. And what he finds there is despair. What he finds there is darkness. A lot of people in our world like to talk about following your heart, living your truth. Uh, this is an example of David doing just that. David is following his heart, and what he's finding is despair. Even though God has repeatedly reminded and assured David that he will be king one day, remember last week we heard about even his friend Jonathan comes and reminds him of that, assures him of God's promises. David now is saying, Saul will kill me. He says that there is nothing better. Literally, it says, there is no good for me except that I run away. There's nothing better I can think of. There's nothing better that's going to happen to me. All I can do is escape. And the place that he goes to is shocking. He goes into the land of the Philistines. This is Israel's greatest enemy. Now, why and how David got to this point, we're not sure. It doesn't tell us what happened that caused David to get there. But it is a sober reminder that even David, even this man after God's own heart, the the king that God has chosen, that even this great warrior and leader is prone to doubt and despair. All of us are. Doubt is an ordinary, normal struggle for us as God's people. Even David experienced it. I experience it from time to time. But at the same time, even though it's a normal part of living in a sinful, fallen world, at the same time, doubt is not a good thing. It's not a badge of honor or of authenticity or of spiritual maturity. Uh, Some of you know, uh, have friends, are reading about this whole movement going on right now of Christians, especially younger Christians, deconstructing their faith coming to question and reject what they had previously believed or been told about God and Jesus and the Bible. And sometimes people are deconstructing uh, because they have experienced real abuse in the church, and it's understandable that they would be disgusted by what they had experienced and kind of throw everything out with it. Sometimes uh, this is happening in the wake of people being told by their pastors or by their parents that Christians are not allowed to wrestle through difficult questions, that there's something morally suspect about raising concerns and raising questions and raising doubts. But sometimes, doubt just happens. Sometimes, even when you've had a pretty stellar background, a pretty stellar track record like David apparently did, uh, sometimes you just fall into these times, these seasons of darkness where God doesn't seem to be there anymore, where you don't sense that he cares for you, 
where you don't sense that he's going to take care of you in the future, even though you can say, yeah, he's always done it in the past. And so the real question, whatever causes us to fall into despair, the real question is what are you going to do when you find yourself there? David is starting to live without reference to God. David is living in his own heart. He's stuck in his own mind. And what is coming from there is pretty dark. David cannot imagine anything better than running away. And when he does so, when he goes off into the land of the Philistines, he falls into all kinds of moral compromise. He goes back to this Philistine ruler named Achish. He's the ruler in a town called Gath. Uh, You remember that was uh, Goliath's hometown. It was the place where David tried to hide in chapter 21. Remember, this is the story where he goes and he tries to hide there. He gets captured by the king, by the same guy, Achish, and then he acts crazy and they send him away. And David writes a couple of psalms about how God saved him from this really impossible situation. So now David goes back there. And so this should be really odd to us as we read it, that he went into this place, he escaped, he says in the Psalms, that, wow, good thing I got out of there, woo! But now he goes back. He's full of despair. He goes back to Achish. He has this whole crew of soldiers with him, all their families, all their stuff. And very ominously and very strikingly, we repeatedly hear that David is styling himself as the servant of Achish. This man who's supposed to be the king of Israel, this king over the promised land, is now doing the bidding of one of Israel's greatest enemies. He's offering to fight on his behalf. You do hear in verse 4 that David's scheming plan does lead lead to Saul giving up the chase, uh, but you quickly start to wonder at what moral and spiritual cost this all comes. David quickly falls into this web of deception and self-justification. In verse 8, you hear that he and his men are making raids against these various ethnic groups who were enemies both of the Philistines and of the Israelites. But he's telling the Philistines, he's telling his new taskmasters that he's actually attacking his own tribe of Judah. He can get away with it because he's killing everybody in sight so that nobody can let the Philistines know what's actually happening. And again, all through this, you hear nothing of God. I think David's actually being pretty sleazy, pretty conniving through this whole episode. He's looking out for himself He's even undermining uh, the enemies of Israel at some level. Uh, But he might be telling himself because of that, I guess maybe I'm doing it for God. Uh, But something's really off here with David. Something is very twisted in his moral uh, calculus, his way of approaching things. Some of it looks like uh, the holy war of Israel against the original inhabitants of the land, the promised land. Remember God told Joshua, I authorize you to kill these people that are already there. Uh, This was part of what God was telling Saul to do, and Saul said, I'm not going to do it. Um, And so this kind of sounds like that, but the really odd thing is that there's no word from God. There's no authorization from God, from the prophets, to go do it. Remember, holy war in Israel was not just like, go kill whoever you want and do whatever you feel like. Um, It only could happen when God told them, go do it. And it had very strict limits around what they could do. But you don't hear anything about that. You don't hear about God. You don't hear about the prophets saying, okay, now it's time to do this. It seems like David's just using it all as a cover for his own self-preservation. His despair and his deconstruction, so to speak, has led him into very serious moral compromise. You hear in verse 11 that this cunning practice was his custom. Um, And if we are reading 1 Samuel carefully, that word should cause our biblical spidey senses to go off. 
Because the last time we heard this word in 1 Samuel uh, was in chapter 8, when Samuel warned Israel about why you really, really, really don't want to have a human king, because they're going to oppress you, they're going to rob you, they're going to tax you very heavily, they're going to take advantage of you. And uh, before Samuel explains all that, he says, let me tell you about the customs of the king who will rule over you. Uh, Let me tell you about the ways of these kings. And so this is, again, that word. In his self-referential despair, David is starting to look a lot like the oppressive kings that Samuel had warned them about. Part of the point of this chapter is to show us some ways that David is starting to look a little bit like Saul. And we already know that Saul is bad news. You don't want to be like Saul. You don't want a king like Saul. This chapter is meant to show you that there is something in David that has that tendency. There's something in him that's not really different from Saul. You hear at the beginning of chapter 28 that this king Achish now wants to take David out to battle with him, to directly battle with Israel. And so then you're really wondering, how is David going to get himself out of this one? He's been able to get away with the deception for a while, but now the king says, well, come with me. Let's go fight Israel together. And so you wonder, wow, David's really dug himself into a pit. What's he going to do about it? And then the story breaks away. We don't hear the resolution for some time. We're shifting to Saul now in chapter 28, but we are left with this very serious tension. What is going to happen to David, to this great chosen Messiah, this man who's supposed to be a man after God's own heart? Is he going to end up just like Saul? We don't know. The story just breaks off and says, we'll come back to this. But we are left with this this deep pit of wondering, are things going to fall apart for him too? Even though the story resumes in chapter 29, you at least get this somber reminder that as good as David has been, he suffers from the same sinful bent that Saul does because David is merely human. He too is turning out to be something of a disappointment and his life is going to get a lot worse later on. Part of the point here is to remind us and prick us a bit with the idea that we need a better king than David. We need someone who's fully righteous. We need someone who's full of integrity and honesty. The point, of course, is that we need Jesus. So that's David's despair, and that will be continued next week and resolved at some level next week. But now in chapter 28, verse 3, you shift to Saul's demise. You go from despair to demise, and it's far more grim than what we've seen so far today. Uh, We get another reminder, like we did last week, that Samuel has died, this great prophet at the center of the narrative, Uh, And at some point in the past, Saul had abolished the occultic practices of trying to communicate with the dead. Uh, uh, These people called mediums and these people called necromancers, these were both different kinds of people that you hired in order to communicate with gods or spirits or dead people. Uh, In God's law for Israel, he clearly forbids this. He says, don't ever mess around with this stuff. Uh, And that extends to us today also. When the Bible uh, talks about these kinds of things, uh, getting involved in the occult, it does not say, don't mess around with that stuff because it's really silly and there's nothing to it and it doesn't do anything. Uh, The Bible actually takes it very seriously and it says, don't mess around with it because it's actually incredibly powerful. It will do the things that it promises you and it will destroy you in the process. Don't mess with it. That's part of the sermon application today. Don't get involved in the occult. Um, God uh, tells people, don't do this stuff. Saul does a good thing in purging it from Israel at some point in the past, but now that the Philistines 
are getting ramped up for this massive battle with Israel. In verse 5, you hear that Saul was afraid. His heart trembled greatly. Like David, Saul is in this pit of despair, but very strangely, unlike David, in the chapter we just heard about, unlike David, Saul actually is trying to seek God's word. It says that he inquired of the Lord. You don't really hear about Saul doing that very often. You hear about David doing it all the time. But here you do. But very ominously, God doesn't answer. No special dreams. No guidance through the priests casting their special dice. No message from any of God's prophets. David looked inward and found only darkness. Saul looks upward but he finds only silence. And so it's shocking to hear in verse 7 that Saul directly violates one of his own moral reforms. He's a hypocrite. He sends his servants to find him a medium. In his fear, he is so desperate for guidance, he is so desperate for clarity and for safety that he turns to the occult. The entire story has this tone of profound twistedness. Something is really wrong, and Saul knows it. Saul hides his identity. He puts on different clothes. Saul goes in the middle of night. They're doing some very shady things. Uh, It's an episode not only of literal darkness, it's nighttime outside, but of course, more than that, it's an episode of profound spiritual darkness. You might hear about this occult stuff, and you might hear me saying, don't mess with this stuff, and you might think, give me a break. Uh, Isn't that just a bunch of superstitious stuff? Isn't that pretty silly? Uh, Surely none of us are running around secretly doing Ouija boards before we come to church. We don't really need to hear about this. We're good Christian people. Uh, But putting aside the fact that as far as I understand it and read about it, witchcraft and the occult are actually becoming a lot more popular among young people today. Let's set that aside for now. Uh, Apart from that, I think one of the things we should see is that modern people are not really as far from these impulses, not really as far from these fascinations as we might initially think. Last week I read this really interesting article uh, that pointed out, quote, that our obsession with science fiction stories, horror movies, and superhero franchises are clues that we really are still as paganistic and spiritualistic as our ancestors. The author goes on, But perhaps our fascination with unbounded scientific progress and technology are even more so. And they are not mutually exclusive. Do you hear what he was saying? This kind of impulse towards the supernatural, towards spiritual things, towards magic, uh, is really uh, one side of a coin that has on the other side of it science. Science and magic being two sides of the same coin. That might sound very strange to you. But the author goes on, to talk about one of the main themes of C.S. Lewis's final book in his sci-fi trilogy, which I would highly recommend to you. The third book is called That Hideous Strength. And the author gives a good summary of this theme in it, the uh, very strange relationship and uh, compatibility between scientism and occultism. The author of the article goes on. Listen to this. This is a long quote, but I think it's really interesting, so pay attention. Uh, Here's how he summarizes C.S. Lewis's book. He talks about how a misdirected quest for scientific progress opens the gateway for the demonic. In Lewis's conception, magic and applied science, that means technology, magic and technology both stem from man's impulse to control the uncontrollable, 
and to bind the mysterious into submission, only to be controlled and enslaved in return. In this sense, fallen humanity is a race of skilled magicians, manipulating reality to fit our lust for power, ease, and control. In order to keep the spirits of death and destruction at bay, in order to defy our vulnerability and mortality, we must use spells and algorithms, chants and mouse clicks, cultic robes and Instagram filters. And so the point there is that we are not really that different from Saul after all. We too, in our modern world, have our own mythologies, we have our own enchantments, we have our own dark and prideful longings for harnessing chaos and death, even if it all comes in the guise of lab coats and credentials and bureaucracies. So don't think, this has nothing to do with me. I don't have these impulses. In verse 8, uh, Saul's servants find him a, a medium, and he tells her what he wants to do. Uh, now, to be honest, this will maybe be a disappointment to you all. I don't really know what's going on here. Um, this is a very bizarre and very dark story. The text offers zero reflection. It offers zero explanation of what's going on with this God ghost guy coming out of the ground and being grumpy about it. Um, I have some theories. I'll talk to you about it afterwards if you want to. Uh, the text just wants to tell you that these things happen somehow. The main point of this story is to emphasize how dark and dire Saul's situation is. If chapter 27 was mainly about David's deconstruction, chapter 28 is mainly about Saul's degradation. Saul is going down in a very horrific way. Without yet realizing who Saul is, this woman reminds him of his own command. She says, whoa, why are you asking me to go back to my old work? Don't you know that Saul put me out of business? If I do this, I'll be in enormous danger. And then very ironically, verse 10, Saul swears an oath with God's own name in order to urge her to do something that God has forbidden. He says, as the Lord lives, as Yahweh lives, no punishment will come upon you. And so it's this horrible, ear-shattering clash between God's moral purity and spiritual darkness. The woman agrees to go ahead. She says, okay, who do you want me to bring up for you? And so verse 11, it emphasizes the name of Samuel. It says something like this, bring up Samuel for me. You don't see it in English, but that's what it does in Hebrew. Saul is so desperate for some kind, any kind of guidance, that he's even willing to use the occult to consult with this old prophet, this old crusty prophet who was always kind of opposed to Saul, always kind of telling him, hey, what are you doing? You're really going sideways. Saul is so desperate, he says, I'll even bring back Samuel. I need something. I need anything. And so in verse 12, this woman somehow sees Samuel and she totally flips out. She starts screaming. Something is happening, even though this lady is experienced in this kind of work, something is happening that even she wasn't expecting. Something very strange is going on. Saul cannot see what she can see, and so he's frantically asking her all these questions. He's saying, who is it? Who is it? What are you seeing? What's going on? And so she tells him, I see this God. I see a spiritual being coming up out of the ground. He's an old man. He's wrapped in this robe, this robe that is simultaneously, we've heard about in 1 Samuel, the, the mantle of Samuel's authority as a prophet, a sign that he's God's chosen guy, but also when we're told that he's wrapped in it, we're kind of being reminded that it's like a burial shroud. Pretty spooky. Verse 14 says this, Saul knew 
that it was Samuel. And so here Saul is confronting his deathly past in the desperate quest for a future. Saul respectfully bows down to this spooky apparition, but Samuel, kind of humorously, I think, Samuel is having none of it. He says, why have you disturbed me? Why did you wake me up from my nap? What are you doing here? And so Saul lays out this pathetic plight that he has. The Philistines are going to wipe me out and God won't talk to me. He says, therefore I have summoned you to tell me what to do. But verse 16, like a thunderbolt out of the sky, Samuel delivers this horrific word. Why are you asking me? Don't you remember what God already told you? Don't you remember that God has turned away from you, that God has become your enemy? God has ripped the kingdom out of your hand. He's given it to your neighbor, to David. And then he reminds Saul that all of this is happening because he refused to listen to God. And so you see what's going on? The most terrifying thing about this story is not the grumpy ghost coming out of the ground. The most terrifying thing of this story is that God refuses to talk to Saul. It's that God has become his enemy. That's supposed to be the part that really scares us. That shows us how horrible sin is. God used to talk to Saul. God made himself quite clear to Saul about what he wanted for him. But Saul was not content with what God had to say. Saul thought he knew better than God. Saul thought he could pick and choose which parts of what God said he had to listen to. And so now that Saul has suddenly gotten very interested in hearing from God, God says, I'm not going to tell you anything. I already spoke to you. You wouldn't listen. It's kind of like that hymn that we sing sometimes, what more can he say than to you he has said? Except Samuel says, I'm not going to tell you anything. Why are you asking me? There's nothing new for me to tell you. And he says, well, but actually, I'm going to tell you something new. Here's what's going to be new for you. Let me tell you about the future. You and your family and your army, you're all going to die. You're all going to get wiped out tomorrow. You're going to come join me down here. And so verse 20, it's almost literally a death blow to Saul. Remember Saul? He's so tall. He's so handsome. He's so powerful. That's why they made him the king. On the outside, Saul looks great. But here's Saul, we're told, laid out full length, all of his tall stature laid out full length on the ground, collapsed in terror because God's become his enemy. That's why God's not speaking to him anymore. It's why he's destined for death tomorrow with his family. And very strangely, uh, very ironically, the medium helps Saul up. She cooks him a meal, his last supper. But verse 25, again, very ominously, all we're told is that he heads out into the darkness. How bad is sin? This is how bad sin is. This is what happens when we stop living with reference to God. Uh, this is the trajectory that David's on. In his case, he's already ended up in despair and moral compromise. In Saul's much worse case, much further down the track, you eventually end up with God as your enemy, with God saying, I already talked to you. I'm not going to tell you anything else. If you refuse to listen to God... If you insist on picking and choosing which parts of his word or which parts of him you like, eventually God gives you what you really wanted all along. He says, okay, you don't have to have me. I'll leave you alone. I'll leave you to yourself. I'll leave you 
in the darkness. All the terror, all the destruction, all the death that that brings with it. But unlike with Saul, God is still speaking to you. God has revealed himself most clearly in the life and the teaching of Jesus. And so the big question for you today is whether or not you're listening. Listen to how the Apostle Paul earnestly appeals to the Corinthians. I love the Corinthians because they're so messed up. Such an encouragement about how even with one of the apostles, uh, how sideways people can go in the Christian life. Uh, and you can see, wow, you know, at least I'm not a Corinthian. But listen to Paul appealing to them. They're in the middle of some pretty serious moral compromise. They are in the middle of some pretty serious picking and choosing of which parts of God's word they want to listen to. And so listen to Paul. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. He's saying, don't be like Saul. Don't reject and ignore what God's been giving you. He then quotes the prophet Isaiah. For God says, in a favorable time I listened to you. And in a day of salvation I have helped you. And so Paul is saying, part of his argument here to the Corinthians is that because Jesus has now come as God's agent of reconciliation so that you don't have to be his enemies anymore, that's just what he's been talking about in chapter 5, Paul then says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That's why you shouldn't receive the grace of God in vain. Now is the favorable time because in his son Jesus, God's grace is available to you. In all your despair, in all of your doubt, there is grace for you. Now is the day of salvation. Because in Jesus, God not only can, but He will rescue you from death and from sin and from hell and from demons and from spiritual darkness. It's the day of salvation today. And so the real question for us is, are we listening? Are we accepting God's grace that He's giving to us in Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thank You for showing us how horrible sin is. Thank You for showing us the pit of darkness that we have put ourselves into. It's painful, it's discouraging, it's scary to see these things, but it's also a mercy because it shows us how brilliantly your grace shines in the darkness. Help us to see, uh, but even more than that, help us to joyfully embrace the gift that you have given us in your Son, this gift of reconciliation, that we don't have to be your enemies, that we can listen to you, that you give us fresh strength by your Spirit to obey you. Help us, Lord, to never take it for granted. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.